everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. This is Enrico without Moritz. Hey Moritz, I hope you're listening to this. And uh, I am in Baltimore for the IEEE Viz conference. Uh, we have done this kind of episode a few times by now. And I have two special guests as usual. So I have Robert Kosara from Tableau Software. I think if you are listening to this podcast regularly, you know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Robert, how are you? <laughs> Enrico, doing well. I have Jessica Holman. Hey, Jessica, she's a assistant professor from University of Washington. She's also been on the show at least once, right? Just Jessica? once, yeah. Just once, okay. Um, welcome on the show. Thank you, yeah, I'm happy to be here. So um, we will be going through a little bit of the sessions that we attended we are going day by day, starting from Sunday to today, that is Thursday. There is one more day to go, but we don't have time to do it on Friday. Um, so we have selected a few uh, highlights from the from the conference, the same way we did last year. So we will be talking about a little bit of um, uh, papers that we saw presented at the conference and also some other events like workshops where people mainly discuss about a specific topic and panels. Um, so I would just dive right in. Go for Good. it. Okay, on Sunday, we had a couple of interesting workshops. We had uh, the first one called the Pedagogy uh, Workshop. Pedagogy of this. Uh, how do you say pedagogy in, in English? Pedagogy? Pe pedagogy, where do you put the accent? Pedagogy? Pedagogy. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. The pedagogy of uh, visualization. And um, that was a very interesting one. Um, we mainly discussed about uh, how to teach visualization. And that's a topic that we talked about on the show a couple of times at least. And uh, I think it's very important. And um, there were a number of invited speakers and uh, also presented uh, papers about innovative ways to teach visualization. And um, yeah, being a teacher myself, uh, I think that was particularly interesting, especially because we all know uh, if you try to teach visualization at least once, you realize very quickly that is 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 quite hard. And um, so I think that, that we, we had very interesting discussions, very, very practical kind of discussions, how to do, how to implement certain techniques. So many people are trying to use a fleet classroom model, for instance. I am trying to do this myself. And uh, of course, it's very exciting, very interesting, but there are some new associated challenges. Jessica, you do the same, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, they don't always like it. Yeah, it's better for them, though. <laughs> it's better, yeah. And um, yeah, so that, that was, that was um, really interesting. Um, Jessica, were you there? I don't remember. No, no, I did not make it. But no, I'm curious about it. Um, did any resources come out of that? Like, I think I really would love it if I could get access to everybody's design exercises. Um, I'm um, not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. Uh, I only remember there's been a lot of interesting discussions and ideas. Yeah. And some professors have some materials online. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if from the workshop they're actually collecting... Um, they have any central repository that that would be nice yeah it would be uh, yeah pressure them yeah then we had a, another workshop the same day i think robert were, was there 
on uh, data visualization principles. I think I, I can't read the acronym. It's C4PGV. Yeah, so there's there's this this new thing apparently that everybody has to pick really bizarre acronyms for their workshops, and so that's what this one was called, C4PGV, which sometimes stands for something like curation, criticism. And a few other things, and then there's the guidelines in there as well. So I think that 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 was that was roughly what it is about to basically find better ways of doing guidelines and design patterns in in visualization, and that that was the idea anyway. But then for about half the workshop ended up, ended up being basically people arguing with me about things because I said a few things. But <laughs> uh, that, that's a recurring theme here. <laughs> every day. So, so what I noticed that when you go when you go on the mic, people start laughing even before you start talking. Now <laughs> you have some kind of reputation I, that you built yeah. over the years. <laughs> So yeah, but the, the the workshop basically started off with these kind of very standard pr uh, presentations, and then I just kind of argued uh, against a few things they were saying about intuition in particular, like how, what's intuitive, because that's a very loaded and very overused word, yeah. term that usually is used in ways that that don't actually make a whole lot of sense. And then I had uh, my own presentation, and that uh, and and I made a few statements there that then led to some very uh, to a very long argument, which was which was a lot of fun. This is not in any way. Negative. They actually liked that that somebody was kind of stirring the pot a bit, um, but that that I don't think that they were after. I mean, that, that wasn't what they had planned uh, before. But it was a, it was a kind of a fun work workshop. Certainly more fun than I'd expected <laughs> uh, before I got there. But that was good. Yeah. Okay. So the, these are the main highlights from from Sunday. And uh, on Monday we had a major event. We had <laughs> the Believe Workshop. So for those of you who don't know what the Believe Workshop is, is a workshop that has been organized multiple times, actually for ten years now. And uh, I was one of the founders of the workshops in 2006. And the workshop is mostly about how to evaluate visualization, innovative methods to evaluate visualization. Basically, how do you know if a visualization is uh, effective? And how do you know if, if visualization A is more effective than B? I mean, I'm, I'm making it simple. It's more complicated than that. Or how do you extract knowledge out of um, experiments or something like that? Um, so these workshops repeats every two years, and it's been going on from 2006 to 2016. And uh, so that was a very special edition. And uh, so um, I, I gave a talk as a, I actually gave a keynote. They invited me uh, as a keynote speaker um, because I was one of the original funders. And that was a lot of fun, I have to say. And uh, Robert also had a talk there, a very interesting talk I want to briefly talk about. So did I. And uh, Jessica also had an interesting talk there. Although it was overshadowed by Robert. <laughs> <laughs> but that was fine. It was interesting. Sorry. And, no. there <laughs> and there was an interesting panel also. So let me talk about very quickly about uh, my keynote and then you guys can talk about a little bit your about your, your talks and a little bit about the panels. Um, so I have to confess that was a little bit emotional because after 10 years talking about this thing and I was, I was a PhD student back then. So I tried to, 
uh, kind of like re reconstruct the history of what happened there. And I have to say that it, it took me a while to remember exactly what happened, how we, we ended up organizing the workshop and continuing for so many years. And um, so I tried to make it fun. I think I'm going to post the, 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 the video, the keynote has been recorded. So I'll, I'll post it somewhere when I, when I, when I get back home. Um, yeah, but I think uh, one of one of the central messages of my of my talk was that we we have achieved quite a bit during the ten last ten years. Um, I was trying to reflect a little bit about what I personally learned by uh, organizing the, this workshop and attending many many uh, talks, and uh, so I think the evolution is very interesting. And of course, there is much much more to do. So I, as usual. Um, so Robert and Jessica, you want to talk about your your talks there? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think we were on a panel called Reflections, which was basically sort of random thoughts <laughs> from single author papers. Um, I talked about something that was probably almost the most specialized. So I talked about evaluating uncertainty visualizations and why that's particularly challenging, um, which is just something I noticed looking around that we have all these papers on techniques for uncertainty visualization, but we don't often talk about kind of the new challenges it brings with evaluation. Um, but I think Robert kind of stole the show because he, <laughs> he talked about sort of how we know what we know. Um, so yeah. Well, how we don't know what we know. That's That, that was actually yeah. my, main, my main thrust there. So th <clears throat> there are... I believe has has research papers and position papers, and that was a position paper. And I don't actually know how many of the papers were position papers, but mine certainly was one. And I so my title was an empire built on sand, and I was obviously going for slight controversy there. But the point was to say, well, we we need to look at our foundations and figure out what of the things that we believe. You know, speaking of the belief workshop, but what what we what we think we know and what we believe versus what we actually know, and that we need to question those things and just ask: Do we actually know that? And do we have evidence for that? And in many cases, we don't, and that's what I was trying to point out, and that that resonated with people. And and I I thought it would be more pushback, <laughs> but yeah. mostly it was everybody seemed to agree with that. Yeah, not not at all. I I have to say I personally really enjoyed it, and, and I think you gave a little bit of a show there. It was, <laughs> he was he was very dramatic. Like. He was pausing a lot, pauses, like using yeah. the right <laughs> tempo. Exactly. Did you rehearse it quite oh, a yeah, bit? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I had already given a, a practice talk and then I, I, I went back and redid a lot of that. And I actually, you know, this thing about how you need a lot more time to write something that's short. You know, yeah. I didn't have time to write something that's short. It's a bit like that because it was a short talk and I wanted to really keep it within the five minutes. I, I said, okay, I'm going to really make this one and really, really make it work for that time. And I think it worked out pretty well. I regret it was not recorded. This should have been recorded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you give examples of things that we we don't we don't know or we, sure. well, we, there, we think we know but we don't know or stuff? stuff yeah. Well, like. my 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 examples are actually kind of a bit of a circular argument because I was showing examples where we where there are published papers that refute earlier work or that at least contradict it to an extent. So there are examples include uh, Cleveland had this paper about banking to forty five degrees, which is this idea that in a line chart the average slope should be 45 degrees which because he had done a study that showed that that's where you can compare angles and slopes the best but it actually turned out in a later study by Justin Talbot and others 
to not be correct because it was a simul- it was a limitation of his his parent- parameter space. So it was just a, a sign to say, well, we thought this was a good idea based on research. It's still a good idea actually because the new stuff that, that Justin Talbot came came up with doesn't work as well for many other reasons but the research the actual study would just suggest something else we would say that that your angle should be much shallower um and there are a number of things like that i mean and 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 kind of my standard example right now is the pie chart stuff right this this idea that we read pie charts by angle that came out of a single paper that was published in 1926 based on a fairly questionable study and we now did some more more work on that and we very i think clearly showed that angle is not how we read those pie charts so it's just become an assumption that where everybody just references the same exact paper from literally 90 years ago and we just need to keep questioning those things and move on a little bit and 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 we talk about replications and things like that so we need to replicate those studies as well and not just trust a single piece of work especially one that's so old and um, and that, that that's really my main argument is to say, well, we there are certain things we think we know, but we really don't. So we need to ask this question that I kept repeating, which is, how do we know that? And that's that I think is a very important question that we're just not asking nearly enough in this field. Yeah, I proposed the Kosara's mantra. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. kept asking, how do we know that? How yeah. do you know that? I can live with that. You can you can call it that. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting too. Like you're talking about all this sort of like in parallel with the replication crisis. So you don't usually bring that in, but I mean, I think the ideas are all sort it's of what we're seeing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we had the panel like at the end of Believe that I think it's interesting how some people come at it from a different angle, like just by you know talking specifically about replication and meta studies, et cetera. Um, but you're kind of really like the advocate for like the deeper problem. Like, how do we know what we know? Uh, so what what happened during the the panel, Jessica? Um, yeah, I think it was kind of a highlight. I uh, believe um, so. Tamara Munzner was on it, um, and I think she got people thinking quite a bit. Um, she brought up the replication crisis, which I then heard about multiple other times at Biz this year. Um, but she was the first to sort of explain what's going on there and why we should really care. Um, because although I think we haven't, it hasn't hit us yet. You know, she was suggesting that it will, um, and so you know, believe it was a perfect place to talk about that. Um, Can you briefly describe what the replication crisis is? Yeah, um, yeah. So in psychology, um, in medicine, probably in other fields. I mean, particularly social psych. Um, there's been sort of a lot of attempts to replicate these kind of landmark studies. So kind of exactly what what Robert's talking about um, in Viz, but uh, they've been failing um, when people actually do things like pre-register. So they pre-specify everything they're going to do in advance um, uh, and they don't have as many degrees of freedom. So um, it's caused kind of this whole debate, um, much of which is happening on blogs, but also in papers um, about, you know, how we should be doing statistics and reporting statistics and how we need to think about research differently. A single paper is never going to be enough, um, you know, to establish what's true and what's not. And we just need to be way more critical. Um, so tomorrow, I think, has recently gotten into that. And so she sort of brought that up. Um, I think Laura McNamara was also on the panel and talked a little bit about sort of the larger kind of like methods and epistemology in which we work, um, which I'm not going to summarize well. <laughs> but I do I remember people, some of the questions being about kind of like, um, you know, how one person can sort of try to change the culture in a field and, you know, whether that's possible, do we all have to change? I think tomorrow talked about this a little too, um, you know, how you can take small steps um, to improve sort of how you're evaluating things, how you're doing studies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that got people's attention. Um, 
you know, in addition to Robert's talk, <laughs> the star of belief, <laughs> and Enrico's talk, which I just happened to miss. So, of course, yeah, the keynote. <laughs> I think that that was very good. Yeah. It's an interesting look back, and and Enrico also mentioned a number of papers that were published in in Believe over the years that got a lot of attention. So that was interesting to to see that too. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I'm gonna try to write a blog post about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to what happened on Tuesday. So Tuesday is the official opening opening of the conference, and um, like every year, the first event is the keynote. Uh, we had a professor from Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Ricardo Hausman. I unfortunately missed the keynote. Mm -hmm. Robert, you were there, right? Yes, uh, that was a really good talk. So Ricardo Hausman is a, a an economist at Harvard. And uh, I'm, I'm going to try and not go into too much detail because there was a lot of stuff that he talked about. But he had this argument about how the the difference in wealth between different countries is growing for sure and but also how, where it's coming from and his theory is basically based on network effects so he's talking about how uh, a country that makes certain things can then and if that if those things are technology things can then make new things by combining the stuff that they already do and that way produce essentially an exponential number of new things. Whereas if you're limited to natural resources, for example, then you will never be able to to move up from that because they just don't multiply. So this is a very simplified version of that argument. And he had some some really good uh, stats and and interesting visualizations too uh, that were mostly very simple. They were mostly scatter plots. But he used them in a very interesting way. It was it was especially with his with him talking about them, it was really uh, impressive how how he laid out his argument and how he made the the case for this for for his theory there. And they also have an online version of that where you can look at at their data and you can you can look at different countries, you can compare different countries, and you can look over time how things have changed as well. So we should probably put this in the show notes, but there is some interesting interesting work there. It's called Atlas um, mm -hmm, at, mm -hmm. at at Harvard, um, and we can probably put the link somewhere. It was really so. It was really good, and, and also one one more thing I want to add about this is that I really appreciate that Viz brings in outside speakers yeah. like that. So not just you know Viz people talking to Viz people, but yeah. it's uh, every year there's somebody from an entirely different field. Like there was somebody from biology a few years ago. There are then there was a brother Cairo last year even or two years ago I two years ago i guess and then i forget who was the, did one, yes. which i really remember like 2011 so she's like a famous um cognitive psychologist now we've had people from psychology from economy from lots of different fields and it's 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 a really good influence i think on the field because it helps us understand what's going on outside of this and 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 try to make some of those connections yeah i agree that's that's uh very good tradition. Okay, I think we can move on to the uh, paper sessions. So we, we are not going to cover every session or every paper at all. <laughs> um, just some of those that we managed to, to attend. Uh, so the first one is the interaction section session at InfoViz. And uh, we selected a few papers from there. I think the first one we want to talk about is uh, the best paper award. Mm -hmm. That's Vegalite, a grammar of interactive graphics from Arvind, uh, I don't know how to pronounce Orion. Satin Orion. Dominic Moritz, can it, oh my God, it's oh, Arvind. Wong Supasawat. Wong Supasawat, sorry guys. And uh, Jeffrey Hare, <laughs> I'm not very good with names. Um, 
Yeah, Robert, you want to talk about this paper? Uh, sure. So uh, Vega Light is uh, strangely named, but it's it's essentially the successor to Vega or like a, a something that, that that's an evolution of Vega. And Vega is a way of specifying visualizations using JSON, which is the JavaScript notation for for structured data. And it's and that in itself is is an evolution of D3. So that we're now basically at least two steps away from from D3. And what they're trying to do there is to make the specification of visualizations more more declarative. So the idea is that you specify what you want to see, and and the machine figures out the how. So it, and and with Vega Light in particular, it's now also much better at filling in the gaps. So if you say I want this and this mapped, I don't know in some kind of, kind of scatter plot, it will pick things for you. You don't have to say I need a certain size or whatever because it will just be smarter about that and that is also true for behavior so there's a lot of interaction that it does for you by just having certain default interactions that you can just pick or that it will just do by itself and so they talked about how it's much much easier much much more concise now to describe a lot of these visualizations and then be able to um, to just be faster in, in 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 developing them, and then just filling in the gaps that you, that you left, if you want to be more specific. So if you then decide you want something on size in that CS plot, you can then add that, and and this way then keep exploring the data rather than having to do everything from the, from the start. And they're also getting people to build on top of that. So there is now a Python API that's built on top of Vega that's that's automated, so it can pick up all the changes, and it's a very nice. And so if you don't like JavaScript, which I guess a lot of people don't because it's kind of a horrible language but of course Py python is nicer and friendlier and it's it's tied into a lot of the data science stuff so you can use it with that and there are a number of of user interfaces that that are built on top of that or that are starting to build i think even lyra is using vega light yeah mm -hmm. lyra is. and so lyra is an interactive tool for for building uh, essentially news graphic style visualizations. Narrative visualizations yeah. yeah and so it's, it's a very interesting project and and I think a very deserving best paper. I agree. Yeah. Jessica, these are your colleagues. <laughs> yeah. Do you use Vega Light yourself? <laughs> um, no, well, I, I used Vega a while back um, when they first started doing the declarative stuff. And I feel like, I mean, for me, I think where I see it being really powerful is um, when you're doing any sort of system development where you need um, just something you can kind of parse and automate. Um, I feel like these these types of languages are going to be really important. And they already are. I mean, people are already using them, like in Lyra, for example. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I think it's really deserving. Yeah, I think what is really interesting is the kind of ecology of tools that they are yeah, building. Yeah, I love that, and, that uh, diagram they show. Yeah, and they're always trying to connect with the rest of the world mm -hmm. and uh, keeping an eye on how to make this happening in the world for real, right? It's just not... I think it, it has an impactful research but at the same time making sure that this is actually used yeah <laughs> right yeah and i think that's that's an aspect of this work that i personally really really like yeah so another interesting paper from the same session was uh hindsight encouraging exploration through direct encoding of personal interaction histories by me feng cheng deng evan peck and lane harrison um Jessica, yeah. 
Yeah, I can talk about this one. I thought it was really interesting. Um, so it's kind of the idea of directly encoding uh, your personal interaction history. So what parts of uh, an interactive visualization have you already kind of examined? So um, I think the examples were kind of really complicated line charts with tons of lines where you had to hover over a line to get more information. Um, and so it would, I think, gray out those lines, change the stroke, et cetera, so that you could then at a glance see, you know, exactly what you had already looked at. Um, and uh, it's not the first um, system that's kind of encoded interaction history um, as a way of getting people to explore more data. Um, but there are, I think, a few unique things. So I think some of the previous work, um, like Wattenberg and Chris and their baby name Voyager, kind of tried to gray out sections that a lot of other people had looked at. Um, and I think uh, similarly, there was work, I think, by Wes Willett and Manish Agrawala um, on scented widgets, where it was like you would encode kind of what everybody had done. So mostly in collaborative visualization, where you want like the group of people to look at everything. So this was doing it on a personal level um, and doing it, I think, kind of generalizing it, doing it more directly. Um, previously, a lot of it was indirect. Um, uh, so, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. They did a study. I think in, um, I don't remember the exact results, but I think it was sort of similar to what's been found in the past with the social, um, kind of you can get people to explore more, um, which I think is important. You know, people often, um, I think, don't keep careful track of what they've looked at. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, it was another paper, actually, that didn't use significance testing, too, So, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is something I've started to pay attention to. So it was nice. They did a good job with the stats. Good. And another one from the same session was the visualization by demonstration idea that was called visualization by demonstration, an interactive paradigm for visual data exploration by Bador Saket, Anna Kim, Ellie Brown, and Alex Endert. Um, Robert, you wanted to talk about this one? Yeah, so this is, uh, I just want to mention it briefly. It's an interesting idea. Even if most people I think are, are a bit confused by the current implementations, the idea is that you can you you basically can move things around in a visualization, and the system then tries to figure out how it would make that happen based on the data. Uh, and and I, I like that as a way of exploring the data. But there were some ideas in there about how you would stack the dots in in a scatter plot to make a bar chart, for example, that seemed at least difficult to figure out, if not a bit more complicated than the necessary yeah. to make a bar yeah. chart. So I think that there is a really interesting idea there somewhere in this, but it hasn't quite come out yet. But I think yeah, it's a good thing that, that this can be explored and we can you know see what else is happening in that space. Good. Okay, so let's switch to the following session we want to talk about that was a session on immersive analytics, even though I think the paper we want to talk about has nothing to do yeah. with immersive <laughs> analytics. So we want to talk about the paper on attraction effect, which is um, one of the many biases uh, uh, psychologists has discovered and um, cognitive biases. And so I'm trying to find the exact yeah, title. Do you have it, Jessica? The Attraction Effect in Information Visualization by Evanthea Demara, Anastasia Bezeranos, and Pierre Dragek. Drag I, the only name I know I'm going to miss. <laughs> Dragicevic. Yeah, thank that, you. That one I can pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I thought this was a cool paper. Um, it was basically, I think, taking um, this bias that's been seen in uh, like judgment and decision-making studies where people are trying to decide between alternatives, but the alternatives are kind of equally matched on um, the overall criteria, um, but just sort of different attributes. Um, and so uh, 
I think there's this sort of robust effect where if you have these decoy elements where you have like um, people are trying to choose between these two things, but one of the things um, has things that are similar to it, but it, it outperforms them on the various attributes um, that having those decoys actually can cause people to then select the uh, the choice that, you know, has the decoys around it. So it's um, sort of this weird abstract principle, but I guess, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion about how this was not something that would apply um, perceptually or uh, it needed to be in tables, et cetera. And so they basically um, turned it into a visualization study um, where people had to choose between alternatives and they sort of varied um, the placement of the decoys and saw, you know, does this still hold and how good are people at evaluating um, and making a choice about, you know, um, finding the the best choice given some criteria, um, you know, finding the highest attribute choice, et cetera. Um, so it was just very nicely done, I think. And I personally like that they're taking stuff from uh, like judgment and decision-making where I think a lot of this stuff um, is useful for us to know. And so it was a nice, a nice kind of like bringing something in from outside. Yeah. I think that's an area of uh, cog cognitive psychology that is ripe of interesting ideas oh, yeah, that can be totally. applied to yeah. visualization and data analysis in general, right? Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. So... Just today we had a panel when Ron Rensing was talking about how easy it is to get fooled and to fool ourselves mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, giving the famous uh, Feynman's quote. So, yeah. Uh, and then there was another one on uh, when Tuesday again, uh, the map uh, lineups idea again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, an honorable mention. And it's called Map Lineups, Effect of Spatial Structure on Graphical Inference by Roger Beacham, or Beecham, I don't know, Jason Dykes, Wooder Mullemans, Aidan Singbly, no, Sling, <laughs> I'm terrible with names, Slingsby, Chatai Turkai, and Joe Wood. These are the guys from the GI Center in London. Uh, Jessica, you want to talk about it? Yeah, I can talk about it briefly. I'm not going to do it justice. Um, it was a very <laughs> cool paper. Um, but if you're aware of like Hadley Wickham's lineup technique, or not just Hadley Wickham, um, you know, other people, Diane Cook, yeah. uh, Heike Hoffman, et cetera, um, have been working on this technique, which is basically a visual hypothesis test where you're randomizing, um, you're taking your data, you're randomizing it, creating these random samples, and then hiding the real data within it. Um, what they did was basically try to apply this technique to maps, which no one had really done. Um, and I think in the process of doing so, um, so they made these kind of map lineups where they're randomizing aspects of the map design, um, specifically the spatial autocorrelation. But they basically figured out ways to um, generate these null hypothesis plots, as the random ones are called, um, in a way that is, you know, um, faithful to what we care about in maps. Um, and so, like I said, I'm not going to do it justice. Uh, but uh, one thing I do uh, recall, which I thought was really nice, was that one of the things they looked at is how um, in maps the size of a spatial region is going to be important. Um, if you're looking at, like, for, you know, spatial autocorrelation, um, you know, how much a certain color dominates the map is, you know, directly an effect of how big the region is. Um, and so uh, I don't know that we've totally figured out exactly how to deal with that in all of the map tasks that we do. And so this was like a nice demonstration of how um, you can model it pretty, um, you know, precisely. Nice. Okay, let's move on to Wednesday. 
So on Wednesday, there was a first session on textual data that I personally want to talk about because our work was published there. And I want to talk about uh, our paper that was um, about textile, uh, a new piece of software that we developed. Um, and the specific title, I should, I should actually remember the title, but the title is An Interactive Visualization Tool for Seamless Exploratory Analysis of Structured Data and a Structured Text. That was with my two PhD students, Christian Felix and Anshul Vikram Pandey, and myself. And um, this uh, paper is about, as I said, about Textile, which is an application that allows you to explore data sets that contain text information together with tabular data. And uh, it's on purpose designed a little bit of like uh, similar to Tableau, uh, this means that you can create visualizations by dragging fields into certain operations. But the only difference is that you can play with text a lot. So that's that's the main idea there. And um, this specific application comes from uh, a lot of interactions that we had with domain experts, in particular with some people from uh, um, ProPublica, trying to look into large sets of reviews, and also with some collaborators we had at the United Nations, they wanted to look into large sets of surveys. And um, so we developed several different prototypes, and after a while we kept, uh, we realized that we kept seeing the same patterns over and over and over again. So, and we also created several different kind of um, prototypes, and this last application basically um, uh, includes all the knowledge that we have uh, accumulated during uh, several months or even years uh, interacting with these people and building different prototypes. Um, so we also have a very nice web page, and you can we are working on a on a version that you can download and uh, install on your computer, and you can load your own data. Uh, that's a textile.io. And I'm personally very happy with this, with this work. Um, my students have done an, an amazing, an amazing job there. And, um, it's very exciting practical work. And I'm really curious to see where, uh, we can bring this application. I think what, what one challenge, uh, actually that the other day there has been a panel on how do, how do you transition software that has been created? In, uh, in research to something that is more product-oriented. That's, I think, a challenge for everyone here. And uh, so I'm really curious to see what, what is going to happen here. So in the application sections, uh, the first paper I'd like to talk about is about a system that is called ProAct. Uh, the title is ProAct, Iterative Design of a Patient-Centered Visualization for Effective Prostate Cancer Health Risk Communication by Ansu Akone. Um, Lane Harrison, Alvida Otley, Nathan Winters, Caitlin Kudale, Paul Han, and Remco Chang. That's the group from Tufts University and WPI. And um, so one reason I want to talk about this paper, I think, is because it's a rare example of a very strong impact in the world. So what they did here was to... Um, uh, iteratively, iteratively generate different um, interfaces and visualizations to communicate uh, health risks to patients in an hospital when they have to decide between going through surgery or less invasive solutions. And of course, as you can imagine, that's a pretty 
complex situation. There is also a lot of emotional distress. And uh, they have done a lot of interesting work there, trying to understand uh, what are the major, how to communicate risk in a way that is comprehensible, and at the same time, how to manage the the personal distress, right? Uh, so I think it's a, it's an amazing um, amazing project. Uh, I think when when you look at the visualizations that they developed, it's not honestly it's nothing special, right? It's a few bar charts or whatever pie charts too. <laughs> there, there, there is a pie chart. <laughs> <laughs> you happy about that, Robert? <laughs> um, but when you look at uh, how they what kind of process they went through and the outcome of this process, I think it's an amazing paper. It's a very rare example of applying visualizations to a very important practical application. So I think that's that's a great paper. Um, another one we want to talk about is Weightlifter. Um, I don't remember the, who I wants can just, to talk yeah, about this. I can this. do this. Uh, so visual, it's called Weightlifter, Visual Weight Space Exploration for Multi-Criteria Decision Making. And this is by the folks from VRVs in Vienna, Stefan Payer, Mark Streit, Thomas Thorstenbeier, Florian Spechtenhauser, Thorsten Mörder, and Harald Pieringer. And you don't I'm have kinda, a problem with names. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just kind of playing somewhere between German and English here. I, I don't know if this, these sound at all comprehensible to English speakers right now. But um, anyway, but the, the, the idea is uh, very interesting and kind of very simple in a way. That they looked at this question of how do you deal with weights uh, in, in what's... When you combine different criteria. So the idea is that, let's see, you want to buy a car and you have a number of criteria. You want to, of course, the price is going to be important and then maybe miles per gallon and the, uh, whatever other things that, that you want about a car. I can't think of any examples right now. In addition to that, and then the thing will ask you, well, if you have some kind of, of, of system to help you decide that between the 10,000 car models is, well, how important is way is the, is the miles per gallon, is the mileage versus the way, the, the price, for example. And picking numbers for that is really difficult. And it's also hard to know how much wiggle room, how much leeway you have with these. And so what they do is they show you how much space you have and, and basically lay out that space for you and then you can make decisions by weighing different things or trading different things off against each other. And this works not just for two or three, but this also works for, I don't know how how many, but at least a good number of different criteria. And and you can then see where you're kind of jumping over into another another point that where 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 your choices get worse or, or better. And it's 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 a Good way, it's a clever way of just, just breaking down this problem that, that, that can be high dimensional into manageable chunks that you can then interact with and see what's happening because they use these centered widgets to, to show you how much space you have and how, where your, your, your solution, ex, uh, improves or not. So I, I like that. It was, it was a good, straightforward, but very clear presentation and made a lot of sense. Okay, and then in the morning there was also a panel. I oh, think yes, that's of one course. of the best events for, for Robert. The best panel. <laughs> so, that, yeah. so this panel was called On the Death of Scientific Visualization, and that was organized by Bob Laramie. 
Um, Robert, I know I want to talk. You want to talk about it? Maybe you should give a little bit of a background here for our yeah, listeners okay. because they might. I'm pretty sure they're not aware of what is going on here. Right. So, can you explain the <laughs> crazy the thing happening Cyrus, here in uh, in our in this conference that we have three tracks and right. one is called scientific visualization? I think when people hear scientific visualization in their mind, they think something. They imagine something completely different to what is scientific visualization in this conference. So can you right. briefly explain okay. that? So we should back up a little bit here anyway to say well, what is what is the VIS conference. And for the last five years or so, VIS is actually an acronym and it stands for, well, so V is unfortunate because it stands for another acronym. It stands for VAST, which is the acronym for Visual Analysis, Science and Technology, which is the youngest of the conferences. And then the, the I stands for InfoVis, Information Visualization, which is mostly what we talk about here. And then the S stands for SciVis, Scientific Visualization. And Scientific Visualization is actually the oldest of, of, of the visualization fields, at least uh, as they're called visualization. And it's... <laughs> Uh, the definitions keep changing and there are always discussions about whether, you know, where you really draw the line. But essentially, scientific visualization, the way it's understood today, is about data that has a location and where the location is a big part of what's going on. And that's very abstract. What it means is that uh, it's about volume rendering, a lot of medical applications where you have CT data, uh, uh, computer tomography, or... Um, or MRI, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, and you you make you turn that data that is essentially measured into pictures, and you you let the, the doctors explore whatever they're looking for to find a tumor, to plan a procedure, and so on. And that's all done in three D. There's also flow visualization where you look at how do gases or liquids flow around the thing, like around an aircraft and, and where is drag and, and so on, or within some machine and where, you know, is, is, is a combustion engine working or not, uh, things like that. So it's basically about applications where you look at physical things and, and you can image or simulate physical things and then show those. And so the crisis in Cybiz is that since, so, so the, the visualization conference that we should maybe add here too, just for context, started in 1990. And since about 2006, the number of papers, the number of citations, and the number of submissions to the scientific visualization part has slowly been decreasing. And so I remember years ago, Five, six years ago, people were talking about this and, and kind of joking about the death of Cybiz. But uh, it's not being felt in the sense that there are fewer papers, there are fewer tracks here at this conference in about uh, Cybiz. And there's a lot more on what you would call the information visualization side, which, which includes both the InfoVis conference and VAST. So that has been vastly explore, <laughs> expanding. And uh, so the the... Kind of the old guard, too, in a way, um, is is feeling a bit slighted, and and they're trying to figure out what to do. And okay, maybe seeing that they feel slighted was a bit unfair, but they're they, they're certainly feeling that there is that that something's going on, and they want to fix this or at least figure out what to do. So enter this this panel that Bob Laramie um, organized, and I wasn't sure about what to expect. So I just went there and and basically figured I'd, I'd leave if if it get really boring, because sometimes the panels can can be just people talking about their own work and kind of trying to just kind of make the 
point by showing their own stuff and that can get really tedious but they were they were really doing a good job so david ledlaw gave one of the talks he he really tried to frame things and say well here are some of the things we're doing here are the things that we're not doing here maybe we should do a better job at the stuff that we do and also recognize that a good number of the things that we set out to do in the late 80s and early 90s are solved now. We have really good rendering systems. We have really good segmentation and all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. that were a big problem for a while and are now effectively solved. And uh, and then there were more some of the more humorous attempts like Klaus Müller was was comparing uh, science to the 20 year cycles in in fashion and so he had all these examples from fashion how things are coming back after 20 every 20 years basically <laughs> and the it was it was it, it was an interesting panel overall I, they they just made a really big mistake at the end where the first question that they got was about um about diversity in scientific organization mm -hmm. and and Sivis is doing the worst in this area it's not mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. we're doing all that great in infovis but it's a lot worse in Sivis. and then han Wei shen who was also on that panel well he first of all he pointed out that 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 he was the asian on the panel everybody else was white guys and they were all guys too that's yeah. important to note here um, and he said we're fine, and so Who I was said that? Uh, Han Wei Shen. Okay, um, not not to be pointing fingers too much here, but the uh, um, but then I was the second person you know, right after that that first person who asked the question. I, I don't know her name, uh, and and so I looked around the room and I said, you know, guys, you're not fine because there were <laughs> in that room there were maybe at, at most twenty percent women, probably less than that. There was not a single black person. There was, and and also given that this is Baltimore, you know, this is, <laughs> it, yeah. you can't, you just can't say that. And even the number of of Asians in that room was was pretty low. So it there is just no diversity in Cybis, and it's in and again, I know the standards are kind of low compared to Infovis, but the, but even the, even by those standards, they're doing badly. And the other thing that would have been fun actually is to like look around and see the average age in that room, and that was you know concerning <laughs> because the uh the, that's that's the other thing you you see that quite clearly actually the young people are all in info this so the they they do have an age problem and they they certainly have a problem with diversity uh and um so they didn't solve the problem but but they certainly addressed it and i think what we're going to see next year at least i i really hope that this is going to happen is to see at least a panel or something on diversity and really starting to, to, yeah, that to would be, ask yeah, that question. That would be great. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. that that's something we've been ignoring so far. And uh, I don't think a lot of people really know what that means or what to do. And there were some kind of, you know, answers about, well, we can't change what the high schools are doing and whatever, but that's not what this is about. Yeah. So uh, there is there is a lot of work to be done there. That's not necessarily going to help Cybiz all that much, but it's going to help Viz in general, I think. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. So it was it was a good panel in the sense that it got a lot of people thinking. I think it certainly got me thinking. <laughs> um, it didn't quite solve the problem. I'm not sure what's going to happen with Cybiz. It I my guess is that it's just going to coast along for another few years at the current level and maybe be uh, declining a little bit and then then they'll just have to figure out what to do mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know I, I don't, don't want to make predictions about what what the final solution will be there but they might it might be that that we kind of re-merge all the conferences mm -hmm, back mm -hmm. together into one as they used to be in the 90s but that's going to be very difficult because everybody's worked really I hard think, I mean, <laughs> people are confused I mean mm -hmm. when new students come here or 
practitioners or people who are not doing research and haven't been here for many years, they're just like, what's going on? It's like, why do you have three tracks? And how do, how do I actually choose which track I should go to? You talk about merging that, um, how it's all going to come back together. I immediately see a flow visualization in my, in my head. <laughs> so right. they can at least make that for us. Yeah. The um, psyche diagram, yeah. <laughs> or a flow is. Yeah, that's, that would be Cybiz. So, so the, the, the joke here is that the, the, the Sankey diagram is Infobiz and the, the flow visualization <laughs> yeah. is Cybiz. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's move on. So last session we want to talk about from Wednesday's the evaluation session. And the first paper we want to talk about is evaluating the impact of binning to the scalar, scalar field by Lays Padilla, Samuel Quinan. Keenan, I don't know, Mariah Meyer and Sarah Krim Reger, or Reger, I don't know. Jessica, you want to talk about this yeah, one? Yeah, um, this was, I think, a really popular paper, got a lot of attention because it took on this um, question really of expressiveness. So the principle that says, you know, like based on what your data type is, you should choose encodings um, that will kind of portray the data faithfully. So um, what they were dealing with is if you have some sort of continuous variable and you want to map it, um, I think their sort of expressiveness would tell you that you should use a continuous color scale um, and you should certainly not use uh, like discrete hues. Um, but they looked at the fact that um, actually a lot of people prefer discrete hues. Um, a lot of scientists do. And so, you know, what is it about them um, that actually is helpful? Um, and so, I mean, they did a nice study, which I'm probably not going to summarize in depth here, but I think um, it appears that maybe there's some simplif like some simplifying function of the discrete um, uh, hue mappings or the categorical type color scales that people are using. Um, so they can actually, I think, be faster with those um, without really losing much accuracy. So it sort of um, was a nice closer look at something that we, I think, take for granted. Again, going back to Robert's you know, idea of like, how do we know what we know? Yeah. Um, they basically questioned expressiveness for this particular case. And it does seem like there's more to be done there to understand, um, you know, especially with some of these uh, conventions that we kind of think, oh, the domain scientists who use these things like rainbow color maps, et cetera, are just like, they just really need to learn, um, you know, maybe there's actually, um, you know, some things that are outside of our current set of guidelines, but that are actually working. So it was a nice look at that. Um, and then, yeah, there was one more paper. If you wanna... Yeah, I just want to say something um, about this paper. Uh, I think that's one of one of my favorite this year. And um, for a number of reasons, one is because um, they, they, um, addressed um, an experimental question that comes from talking a lot with practitioners right mm -hmm. and I've noticed this, I've noticed this kind of situation myself in in the past when I when I interacted with uh, for a couple of years with a group of climatologists and uh, it is certainly true that there are some um, uh, established practices in some um, circles, like for instance in climate science, that we tend to criticize, but we just didn't spend enough time to understand why they do what they do, right? Yeah, and well, we didn't want to question ourselves. We yeah, of course uh, we're right. Exactly, right? 
And um, so I think that's that's. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure there are many other examples like that, and I think it's it's great. This this kind of idea of going out there trying to understand why certain practitioners do something in a certain way and translate that in a controlled experiment is a is a fantastic idea. And um, I think, of course, the paper moves a very initial tiny step, but it's a step in the right direction. And I found it really inspiring, the idea that there is another example of a principle that we use all the time. That's a principle I, I teach in class, and it doesn't seem to hold very well in this in this situation. So this refers back to your idea, Robert, right? How, how do you know that? That's another, another example, right? Uh, Jessica, the second paper you wanted yeah, to talk about? Um, yeah, so just briefly, I thought it was kind of a nice um, counterpoint. Um, so it was called the elicitation interview technique, capturing people's experiences of data representations by Trevor Hogan, Uta Ingrich, and uh, Eva Hornecker. Um, and I thought it was nice. Um, I think the thing that I liked uh, is that while I don't do that much qualitative research, they were sort of trying to um, kind of raise the bar when it comes to, uh, you know, trying to understand people's insights as they're using a visualization. I think we need to understand more kind of how people are thinking when they use visualizations. And their particular approach, I think, is trying to be very systematic. So rather than just kind of asking people to think aloud um, and just sort of sitting back and writing down what they say, um, they had, you know, some actual kind of concrete guidelines for how to do this well. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of a nice um, contribution there. Um, you know, I think we still tend to be pretty quantitative in InfoViz, but yeah. um, obviously there's value to, um, you know, getting better at what we're not great at yet. So it was a good step in that direction. Yeah, there was an interesting finding from, uh, from this work that, uh, so they found that people, when they are reading graphs, they are um, connecting events and experiences from their own life that doesn't really yeah. have anything to do with the graph, yeah, right? Yeah, I think that's so awesome. So th th yeah, those are very interesting. Prior knowledge is always yeah. there. It's kind of like, the, I don't know, it. there is a timeline and the thing, and the person is like, oh, what did I do in 2005? What was I doing in 2005, <laughs> yeah. right? And it's, it's totally unrelated, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So th people tend to inject their personal stories when they are um, extracting information from graphs. Okay, this concludes the um, papers we wanted to talk about from Wednesday. And um, we move on to Thursday, which is today. <laughs> so we had a whole session on storytelling and presentations. So here we have two eminent <laughs> researchers that are working a large part of the research is about storytelling and presentation. So I'll, I'll let you guys just uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. describe the session and your thoughts there. So I was the session chair, so I actually know a lot about this session <laughs> because I had to read all the papers. Um, I thought it was nice. It was a lot of sort of um, figuring out what are the pain points in the process of creating narrative visualizations or other types of presentations um, and then building tools to address those. I think that kind of sums up every paper. Um, uh, and so there are a, a few nice ones. I mean, I guess one that uh, I can mention is the first one, iterating between tools to create and edit visualizations by Alex Bigelow, Stephen Drucker, Danielle Fisher, and Mariah Meyer. Um, I think a really common problem if you think about how people actually create visualizations. Um, and even something I tell my students to do is that you're often 
creating it programmatically or using something like D3, um, uh, maybe something like R. Um, but then there are certain things that are such a pain to do in the programmatic um, application that you end up importing it into Illustrator or something like that and trying to fix it up and make it look nice and do the things that you, you know, the other tool is not expressive enough to do. Um, so I think it's like a, a practice that, you know, so many people are using and that is actually a good idea because you're sort of taking care of the details. But it's a huge pain, and so the thing that we can't do really is we can go from something like D3 to Illustrator, but we can't then go back to D3 after we've done a bunch of Illustrator work without losing everything we've done. So if we have to update the data, for instance, you have to start over, and so they basically tried to solve that um, particular problem, kind of looked at the ways that you could bridge between tools so that you can move back and forth um, iteratively, and in particular, I think they built something for D3 and Illustrator, which is kind of a popular combo. Um, and then... Should we move on? Did anybody? Yeah, I think what I, I wanted to mention is this data-driven guides paper. Um, it's called Data-Driven Guides, uh, Supporting Expressive Design for Information Graphics by Namo Kim, uh, Istan Schreikart, Shi Cheng Liu, Myra Doncheva, Wilmot Lee, Joanne Popovich, and Hans-Peter Pfister. And uh, what they did was also a very straightforward idea, but it's surprisingly powerful, where they were able to put the... Uh, um, <laughs> the uh, little guides into a tool <coughs> that were uh, that would then respond to data, and you could then use those guides to to draw information graphics, like the 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 famous uh, Nigel Holmes example. So then they used Nigel Holmes monster there as an example. And uh, I wasn't very excited about the presentation. I had said some unkind things about that on Twitter, but <laughs> the the paper is really good. I think they and and they missed. I just felt they really missed a, a chance to really make this fun because it, they had such great examples and didn't <laughs> make the presentation very compelling. But the work's really good. I, I really liked what they were what they were doing. That that they they just thought about how can we make this doable and then find something that is that is a fairly general way of doing this that would let you do a lot of different things. What they also did was they, they would uh, measure some of Nigel Holmes' existing um, infographics from that, that, that were also used in some of the studies earlier and found that some of them were where the values weren't exactly matching the, the, the shapes. So it was, it was interesting to see that they, they really thought through this and, and, and did some really good work there. So I thought that was a, a really interesting a little piece of yeah, I think work. there were a lot of problems they had to solve to do that where maybe they didn't necessarily contribute um, you know their own solution but things like annotation placement um, like their tool was taking care of all these things like um, recognizing what the user was trying to draw on top of so I think there was like a lot of sophisticated sort of back-end you know computer vision stuff they had to pull up um, which I was impressed by because mm. um, I would think it really worked um, from the demo so I like the talk just because of the content <laughs> okay yeah, so another paper in the same session that was um, got a lot of attention and really kind of impressive was Color Gorko, Creating Discriminable and Preferable Color Palettes for Information Visualization by Connor Gramazio, David Laidlaw, and Karen Schloss. Um, and so this one I thought was really cool. Um, as someone who doesn't know a lot about color but relies on tools like Color Brewer heavily, and if I don't, my color palettes are a mess, um, what they did was actually, I think, try to um, improve things a bit in that space um, by making a tool that allows you to control um, the degree to which discriminability between the different shades in your color palette and um, the preferability of the color shades are um, 
weighted sort of. So it was, um, Colorboard gives you a bunch of palettes that are sort of expert chosen um, uh, in order to be discriminable and to look nice and aesthetic. Um, but they had uh, basically an algorithm for generating color palettes based on what we know about what people prefer and what's discriminable in color space um, and then giving the user control so that using sliders you could say, you know, show me the ones um, that have this many different colors in them and are more on the discriminability side, um, et cetera. So um, there was a lot of sort of interesting stuff. I could see people actually learning from the tool just from using it. Um, so rather than just going to a tool and picking a color palette, you could actually play with it. And it also had some randomization built into the algorithm. So I think it, like it seemed like something you could actually get better with color um, just by using, in addition to getting color palettes that they um, compared against, you know, palettes from Microsoft and Tableau and um, uh, Color Brewer and did, you know, extremely well on, especially on preferability. So um, apparently people have preferences for certain types of colors. Um, and if you model that, you know, you can do pretty well. So it was nice uh, paper. Nice. Nice. <laughs> So we have one last one we want to talk about uh, from the time series session. That's uh, the surprise technique. And it's called surprise, Bayesian weighting for the biasing thematic maps. That's from by Michael Correll and Jeffrey Hare. Um, very interesting paper. Jessica? Yeah, I can talk about it. Robert should jump in too. Um because again, I know these uh, people well, and so <laughs> it'd be interesting to hear from someone who doesn't know it, um, yeah. although I'm probably not going to do it total justice. But the idea is that a lot of times with things like choropleth maps, um, you try to uh, to graph um, some variable, some thematic variable, like you know unemployment or some disease rate. Um, but there's often confounding factors, so things like population density um, and uh, you know differences in variance based on population density. And so what they did basically is a method where instead of mapping the actual values, you're mapping kind of the deviation of the values from what you would expect. Um, so you're basically defining an, a model, which is your expectations, um, and then seeing how the data differs for that. So it basically, I think, could save people a lot of time and help them actually see what's important in maps um, where you otherwise can't uh, really tell what's changed, you know, um, as you're comparing maps, et cetera. Uh, so um, what am I missing? Robert, do you? No, that makes a lot of like sense. This. I would just phrase it slightly differently. I would say that there is a lot of nonsense in maps in general because the a lot of maps that you see just show nothing other than the patterns that are already there in population or or just in the variance. And and then you see like these lists of the most dangerous counties in the US. And mostly it's these tiny counties because of the variability. And th this this work really is is just kind of the, the total antidote to that, hopefully. Yeah. And if people actually use it, we'll end up not seeing all this nonsense that's that's being spread on Twitter all the time with where maps are used in these very dumb ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's interesting follow-up ideas too. Like um, you know, could you show the values and then have some sort of overlay that gives you this surprise information? Because I think sometimes you care about both. And so yeah. there's like a whole sort of design space of you know, like making these maps still show the values in case you really care about the value, but also, you know, bringing in kind of this, like what you would expect. So, yeah, that that's another one of my favorites this year. Um, so virtually every single time I had students, some students in class with a project that included some choropleth maps, 
they made this mistake yeah. every single time. I know right? I show them slides too with like, don't do this. It's like, it's, uh, I mean, <laughs> in retrospect, once you know it, it's pretty obvious, but if you don't know, it's like, oh, yeah, it oh, takes, really? it takes a while to really internalize that. But I think yeah. you also have to know so something obvious. about like the population statistics and stuff sometimes to recognize that like, what you're actually showing is something like population. So you, like people don't have great geographical knowledge anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They would literally come and say, Hey prof, look, I I created a plot of how people tweet in the US, right? <laughs> yeah. That's not that doesn't tell you anything about w what yeah. <laughs> tweet volume is just population, right? Uh, so now I can just hand them the, this paper. <laughs> <laughs> just print out a big stack and then just <laughs> yeah. hand it out to everybody. And I have to say, Michael gave an amazing presentation. That was, that, that fun, was fun. Yeah. That was uh, very, good, yeah. very, very well crafted and, and fun. <laughs> a lot of fun. Okay, so this concludes our summary of this. Um, yeah, uh, of course, we had to skip a lot. Uh, um, so maybe we, we can conclude by... Uh, reasoning a little bit about what the major trends are. What 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 did you detect? Anything special? What is going on? Is there anything new? Anything? Any special trends? So something that caught my attention um, was just uh, kind of a focus on improving methods, um, but sort of with a unique maybe emphasis on statistics this year, which I think is kind of in, um, informed by kind of like the replication crisis in psychology and other fields. Um, you know, this idea of questioning. You know, can we really trust what's reported in some of our papers? Do we need to start doing statistics differently? Um, so I was actually on a panel, which we didn't get to, about, um, you know, how to improve empirical visualization research, where we were collecting, uh, you know, questions from the audience. And I think there's so many questions as people try to get away from things like null hypothesis significance testing, you know, like what should we do instead? And how do we as a field change everything we're doing or a lot of the way we're reporting results? So, I mean, I've, I feel like that's a trend that has appeared at CHI, um, another conference I go yeah. to, um, actually probably like three or four years ago, um, but is, you know, again, having a resurgence there and is now finally filtering into viz. So that makes me happy because I think it'll only lead to positive change. Yeah, and I have to say, I've seen a lot of statistics used this year, and it's mm -hmm. not just on uh, statistics used for controlled experiments or experimental work, but also how to use statistics to compare what you see to existing models or create a visualization that is more based on a statistical model than the data directly. I think that's a, that's a very yeah. positive trend. Yeah, I think that that uh, I was just thinking. I mean, the lineup, the lineup right. paper is like that. The surprise well, and, paper and the surprise is map, like right? that. And that we just talked about, and, and that's smarter use of statistics than in the past. Yeah. So I think in the past, most of the visualization uses of statistics have been very close to just kind of basically mimicking or very kind of just building on top. But now it's like, what can we actually, what, mm -hmm. what can we, how can we use statistics to make the visualization better? And maybe not just a little bit, but qualitatively different. And I think that's really interesting to see that that actually was, that was a, a uh, I'm not sure if it was quite everywhere, but it, it certainly informed a good number of, of the papers this year. Yeah. Which I wonder if the emphasis on like modeling and um, things like machine learning is somehow influencing Viz mm. a little bit. Like, 
Yeah, why not? <laughs> and I think that's actually, we didn't talk about much about VAST, but I think yeah. VAST and, uh, had a number of papers. I didn't see many of them, but I think VAST had a good number of papers this year that used uh, machine learning much more than in the past mm -hmm. yeah. and, and integrated that better than it used to be because VAST yeah. always had these like strange machine learning papers that were just not very, very busy. But I think we're now seeing that actually being, being turned into something really interesting where they, where they are able to, to turn, to combine the, both of them into something really cool and yeah. compelling. Yeah. There was a whole session on visualizing machine learning models. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's definitely a trend there. But I think yeah. even more generally, like this um, hype about data science maybe is yeah. coming in a little bit. Yeah. I guess we now have the visual data science yeah. like workshop thing. Yeah. So maybe having an influence on all this modeling. Anything else? Well, I guess I'm not sure if, if it's really a big trend, but there seems to be more introspection. So from maybe it's just because I spend too much time on these panels, but the from belief, I mean, there was belief. Maybe because of all the questions that you ask. Every <laughs> well, but there You're was an introspective year. <laughs> I'm just that kind of guy. No, but it's the uh, actually I am. But the uh, so there there is. Um, I believe there was a pit, the, the panel about the future, of course, yeah. but that very strongly, especially with Tamara talking about the replication crisis, very strongly turned into, so what do we do? How do we do things? Yeah. How do we do them better in, yeah. as a field? There was uh, the the, the, the uh, um, empirical work paper uh, panel that, that Jessica was on. There was a death of cyber panel. Uh, it seems like a lot of people are talking about these questions about how, what's what where is the field going what are we doing what are we doing right what are we not doing right so i'm not sure if that's really all different from previous years because panels always tend to be kind of meta yeah at least some of them always tend to be but um that 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 to me seemed to be more present this year than in previous years yeah i had an impression but i figured it was just me because i've been on panels <laughs> <laughs> so could be just us yeah i mean that's yeah. certainly true we're both having introspective years <laughs> no, it's true. I, I have the same impression. I think it's a good thing, actually. It's yeah, a sign totally. of... Oh, sure. Maybe yeah, field yeah. maturity yeah. when you start turning inward. Yeah. Anything else? Did you enjoy Baltimore? <laughs> there was yeah, not I, much I, to do around got, here. Well, there's a lot of stuff in the harbor. The harbor yeah. No, it's actually nice. it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a fun place. I just I got sick. Yeah, me too. I, I think here. that's been the worst vis ever for me. I've, I've been sick almost all the time. I skipped a lot of parties, unfortunately. I was just going to say the parties were yeah. a bit unfortunate this year because so there, maybe it needs to be explained very quickly. Yeah. There, are, there are four parties now yeah. that, that are that are organized independently from the conference. So these yeah. are just groups of people doing that. There is an East Coast party, a West Coast party, a Utah party, Utah party, and an Austrian party. And... This year, they all happen to be in the same sp place, which is uh, <laughs> uh, an, an Irish pub that's right. that's okay for one party, but it really yeah. isn't great enough for four parties. <laughs> and it's like every night people are going there, and and luckily I, I was <laughs> luckily I was sick, so uh, <laughs> I didn't actually <laughs> end up going the first two nights. But um, uh, that was kind of strange. But 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 actually, the part about the parties is interesting because that number keeps growing yeah. and I think it's actually a good a very good thing certainly for kind of the social aspects of, of, of this and it helps get more people to talk to each other and and they're a lot of fun so I think that's, that's a, a good thing and I, I think that really helps the conference become more of a not just a place where people talk to each other about papers but also becomes a bit more of a social thing and a, it's, it's such a, a welcoming thing. conference yeah. and I think mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the aspects that I like the most 
we can always improve, of course. Yeah, so hopefully <laughs> next year they'll figure that out. Because they, yeah. they do coordinate the times, but they do not coordinate the place. I think next year we'll see yeah. them coordinate well, no, the place as well. Part of the problem, because I was planning the West Coast one, is that it was very hard to find a place that could take that many people and would respond to your request. So that bar just happened to do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good for them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Shall we wrap it up? Yes, sir. Good. Okay. Well, <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks a lot. That was fun as usual. Thank you for devoting some of your time for the show. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure that we will have you on the show in the future sometime. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Have a good trip back. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, we have a request. If you can spend a couple of minutes reading us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're of course on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage datastory.es and look for the link that you find on the bottom in the footer. So one last thing that we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want to us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for us. And that's all for now. See you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. Mm-hmm.